I'm Brett McGarry. Greg Mackling, how are you, sir? Uh, good morning, Brett. A little snow over the weekend, and uh, winter is back, friends. I had uh, one of those... It, at, at first, it was a, one of those wonderful moments, and it actually turned into something bad this morning. Oh, I woke really? up. Woke up from a, a fairly deep sleep. Like typically Sunday, I don't get to bed early enough because what ends up happening is I go out and play on Saturday, and then I get up late on Sunday. Sometimes like beyond noon. Right. Uh, this time, this week, it was one p.m. Oh my! So then I have a hard time falling asleep Sunday night. That adds up. That wasn't the case yesterday. I went to bed at seven thirty, I think, maybe eight o'clock, and I was lights out. And I woke up from a deep sleep. Uh, in a really awkward position with, like, my arms sort of wrapped around my back. Like like Marty McFly in Back to the Future. I don't know if you recall how he sleeps when he's sleeping on top of the bed, but that's... I was just contorted. <laughs> I was in having such heavy dreams, and I just woke up and thought, oh, I'm awake. And then I panicked because uh, I thought, I'm not waking up to an alarm. What does that mean? So, of course, I turn around, and I put my glasses on, and I look at the alarm clock at 12.36 a.m. I think... I get to go back to sleep. Two hours bonus sleep. But I didn't. I couldn't fall back asleep. Oh, dude. <laughs> that, that is the worst. I, I'm very good at waking up two minutes before the alarm goes off, but I love when I wake up and I realize that it's only 10.30 or 11.30 and I've got a couple more hours to sleep. So anyway, start to the week. It's going to be a cold start and it's going to be a, a chilly week. Keep it locked here. Got a text message about lights out at Grant and Keniston. Oh. That was about 17, 18, 20 minutes ago. So uh, give no, me a... No, actually, sorry, well, sorry to... That was 5.43 p.m. Yesterday. Yesterday. False alarm. Never mind. 780-6868 with uh, current traffic conditions. If you're seeing things out there that you'd like to pass along. Very good. Good eye, Mr. McGarry. Yes. Okay. Good. Boy, that must have been fun at quarter to six on a Sunday. The yeah. lights at Grant and Keniston. Yeah. As people are trying to get home from their various, uh, f- fleeing any various shopping regions, because especially right there, there's the uh, the big grocery store at the corner. So That's right. Yeah. Uh, and now it's funny because it popped up on one screen, so I assumed that it had just come in. So uh, my apologies. I didn't want to uh, send you into any sort of uh, tizzy here. You got We have a couple minutes here before we, do. we have to move along. Yeah. Do you remember uh, this? This might be a sad day for you, Brett, here. Oh. Do, do, do you remember this organization? Oh, my... Uh, where is My it? My board is not. It's right at the top. It says 1990s. I got it. Let's fire it up here. Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right. Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Is popping up all over the country. All over. Blockbuster Video. <laughs> wow, mm-hmm. After staving off the mass closure of stores in 2013, a blockbuster video in Texas is closing, leaving movie lovers in the reason, uh, region very few places left to go to rent a film. A liquidation sale held over the weekend showed the love that still remained for the movie renting era as crowds poured into the Edinburgh, Texas location, the last one in the state. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I... Um Quick story about Blockbuster. I we I had a held a grudge against them for many years. They we rented a movie back when I was a teenager, and 
we returned it like later that day. Went home, watched it, took the movie back, put it in the overnight drop off or whatever. And uh, then they, they told us the next time we tried to rent a movie, this is me, my, my family and I, they said we had a late charge. And we said, no way. We dropped that off the same day and they wouldn't budge. And uh, just we exclusively went to Roger's video after that for many years. I did finally relent because when I lived in Osborne Village, there was a blockbuster village or blockbuster just south of Wardlaw. Yes. Uh, I guess near sort of around Gertrude, maybe. It's now a Snap Fitness location. Uh, but I, I lived a block away. I couldn't not go to the blockbuster to rent movies. Uh, but yeah, blockbuster. I still like the uh, being able to go and look and wander around. Because when you're sort of browsing through Netflix or whatever streaming service, it doesn't feel like it's earned. You know what I mean? When you get to the, the store and you find that they've got the movie you want... You feel like you've earned it. Well, I'm going to take this home and cherish it. Well, I like to still physically read the newspaper because I feel, I feel as though there's stuff that's not online, like I'm missing something. Yeah. And so I feel the same way on Netflix that they have skewed my searches, that they've shrunk down my options based on my preferences. Uh-huh. And so I'm, I feel I'm always might be missing out on things. And I'm going to quote Jerry Seinfeld as I do at least three or four times a week. Jerry Seinfeld always says, and I believe this, men don't care what they're watching or what they see on TV. They want to know what they're missing. Right? We're worried about what we're missing. Because the whole time we're watching a show, it's like, I wonder what else is on. (laughs) I wonder what else I should be watching. I can watch, I love the PVR, the pause and the return. I can watch two sitcoms. If I'm in the mood, I can watch two sitcoms in about mm, 22, about uh, 40 minutes. Yep. And be watching them simultaneously. Okay. Yeah. How do you do that simultaneously? Press pause. And then do the last channel and keep pausing oh. back and forth. And then uh, if you just get far enough ahead, you never look, watch a commercial. It's great. <laughs> well, why not just watch one and then watch the other? You could record them both. Yeah, because I don't have time. This actually happened to me yesterday. I was watching a recorded show, Supernatural, episode of Supernatural. But the stupid golf tournament hey, with Jason whoa, Day whoa. went into a five-hole playoff. Whoa. Stupid golf tournament. <laughs> Bite your tongue, young man. It took two hours for the playoffs, so I kept going back and forth. So I'd watch five minutes of Supernatural, and then I'd go back to the playoff, and they, they didn't resolve anything. They got to go. They got to wrap it up this morning. Well, at, the I think sun nine goes o'clock. down eventually. I know. <laughs> yeah, so they got to go. I think they start back up at nine o'clock. Uh, but I'm sure Kelly Moore will have a little bit more coming up in sports at six twenty-five. Up next, though, the headline on this particular story has to do with powerful immigration and refugee board judges in Canada accused of sexist, aggressive, and inappropriate behavior. We will speak with Global's Brian Hill on this. You can get more details at globalnews.ca. It's all coming up on 680 CJOB. The headline, globalnews.ca. Lawyers allege sexist, aggressive behavior by powerful immigration refugee judges. You can find that, again, at globalnews.ca. We're joined now by Global News associate producer Brian Hill. Brian, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Well, we appreciate your time this morning, Brian. This is an extensive investigation, to be sure. Why don't we start with a high-level question. What is the IRB, and what is their role in Canada's immigration process? 
Sure. Uh, so the IRB is uh, essentially a group of judges or pseudo judges, so to speak, uh, who hear immigration and refugee cases. So somebody's trying to apply for asylum to stay in Canada, uh, or if there's a, a more complex immigration case, say somebody's trying to sponsor a family member to come to Canada, uh, these judges will sit uh, and adjudicate and hear those cases and then make decisions on who gets to stay and, and who has to go. Now, this particular story, the lawyers alleging sexist and aggressive behavior by these judges, uh, we obviously we can't do, tell the entire story here in three minutes, but can you give us a snapshot of what's going on? Sure. So, so basically, we've talked to uh, a bunch of lawyers who say there's been this long ongoing problem with uh, complaints uh, and inappropriate behavior by some of these judges. Now, they say the vast majority of these judges conduct themselves fairly, uh, that they're very reasonable, and they do a very, very good job. But there's a handful of bad apples who uh, behave in ways that are extremely inappropriate. So they act aggressively towards the claimants, uh, towards the applicants. They act aggressively towards the lawyers. Uh, in some, this, in the one case, a lawyer is alleging that a judge uh, basically made her download uh, nude color photos of a young woman who had been the victim of sex trafficking so that he could compare them to the way she looks uh, in person in order to prove her identity, despite the fact he already had evidence uh, showing her identity. So there's some really strong uh, allegations being made here about this inappropriate behavior and the lack of response from the IRB. Well, and this is the type of behavior that quite often many of these new Canadians or or these immigrants that, that are trying to become Canadian are dealing with behind the scenes when they get here. They're fighting uh, against that when they leave their, their home countries in many cases, and that's what they deal with when they come to Canada. Uh, they're, they're dealing with people who are treating them aggressively and abusing them uh, on all sorts of levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's no doubt. Like, so th yes, we know about the issues of the, this influx or this trying to increase in the number of people trying to come here and claim refugee protection, asylum. Uh, but what we need to keep in mind is that a lot of these people are very legitimate, very worried, have real concerns for their safety and well-being at home. They're fleeing persecution, possible torture, execution. They have fear of death. Uh, and then they come here uh, seeking and hoping to find a place where they can be safe. And then, unfortunately, uh, as these lawyers are alleging, they, they're then subject to treatment, which is really, really unfair, very aggressive, and, and doesn't allow them the opportunity to have a fair hearing where they, they can really be assessed, the value of their claim can be assessed fairly. Now, Brian, you referred to, we only have about 60 seconds left here, and you referred to some of these judges as being bad apples. Who penalizes these bad apples? What's the disciplinary process? Yeah, and that's a great question. So the, the process is internal. So the IRB recently made changes to its complaint process. Uh, but what lawyers are telling us is that those changes aren't really good enough. The process, it's still entirely up to the, to the discretion uh, of the head of the IRB, the chairperson. Uh, it, we have one case where a former or where a current IRB judge, Natalka Cassano, she was actually uh, proven, shown to have committed a misconduct uh, to be unfair, but what the consequences are, no one knows, not even the lawyer. Uh, she's asked for copies of investigation report. She hasn't got them. Just been told, don't worry, uh, appropriate measures will be taken. So it's still, uh, it's very secret, uh, very secret. Lawyers say this whole process is shrouded in mystery 
and and they'd like to see a lot more transparency in how the IRB deals with these complaints. Global News Associate Producer Brian Hill, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Much more on this story throughout the day and much more at globalnews.ca. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you, along with Savannah Piers in Good studio. Morning. Good morning, Savannah. Thanks for being here with us today, guiding the ship. Mm-hmm. Kelly Moore is here as per usual, as is Jeff Braun and the omnipresent behind the glass, Jerry. And it's been, well, a bizarre several weeks, to say the least, Kelly. Have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, we see trends, we see... Uh, news cycles that extend beyond the 24 hours. But uh, with the Me Too movement and ever since the Harvey Weinstein allegations coming public, it seems as though on a daily basis there's one, two, sometimes three people uh, whose names we recognize that are being accused of some sort of sexual misconduct. Well, my weekend started like with Friday hearing about uh, the uh, the allegations against Paul Bliss, the CTV reporter. Then seeing the note on what we were going to be doing Monday morning with uh, respect to uh, the IRB judges. And then this morning, I'm driving, into, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, like, it, when's this going to stop? And as I'm driving into work, I'm listening to the shift with Drex, and this is just before 4 a.m. this morning. Uh, and there's also, I think, there's the allegations we're going to start hearing about that really, really did cross the line that women felt either too, um, you know, scared or intimidated uh, or you know, what have you into actually reporting. And that's what we've heard over the last couple of hours. Um, Ontario uh, Progressive Conservative President, Party President, Rick Dystra, who used to be a federal MP, uh, is now being accused of basically sexual assault um, and, and kind of confining a woman into his apartment building and kind of forcing in her, her into sex. And I think, you know, that allegation absolutely should have come forward um, when he was still a sitting MP, even if it meant just an investigation into, you know, whether or not it was in fact true. But, you know, that allegation goes back to 2014. Uh, and I think, you know, the fact that it went this long without being reported is, is, is really a problem and indicative of kind of how the, um, you know, the culture in Ottawa works. And that's freelance reporter Justin Ling on the shift with Drex. Uh, it, it, it just, that that goes well beyond inappropriate behavior. Inappropriate to me is, you know, you make an offhand comment because you had a lapse in judgment, uh, locking someone in an apartment and forcing them into doing something they don't want to do. That goes well beyond inappropriate behavior. Well, that's a, there, there's going to be a list of criminal possibilities coming out of an yeah. allegation like that, right? I mean, uh, a lot of people get hung up on, and it's not women, it's typically men. And Savannah, I'd like to get your, your take on this. A lot of men, when these allegations come forth, uh, are worried about the, the ability for this to turn into a witch hunt and people who maybe didn't do anything wrong getting wrongfully accused. I don't think we've really seen that to this point, but it is a concern. And when you hear that as a woman, what's your response to that? Yeah, I don't think it's fully become a witch hunt because most of them have been either proven or there's it's not just one girl. For a lot of these cases, no. there's like one and then 10 more come out of the woodwork with the exact same story. So it's not like they all are making up the exact same thing when there's weird similarities between them all. Of course, it's the same thing. And it must have happened if there's a pattern to it. So like I think about the way some of these things have been handled. And if you're accused 
and you are innocent, is there any way you're stepping down? Like, are you not going to be horrified, A, at the allegation and stand in front of the media or release a statement that is, you know, suggests that you're horrified that anyone could have misconstrued any of your mm-hmm. actions in a certain way? Uh, normally what we see is defiance. Yeah, that's at true. At first, I, I, I just, I'm trying to wrap my head around God forbid, you know, uh, something like this was thrown my way, how I would react. Yeah. And, you know, on, on the point that you said almost every other day, there we're hearing one, two, three. I just, out of curiosity, in our newsroom software here, just did a search on the word misconduct to see what would pop up. Oh, yeah. And I see yesterday afternoon, actor Scott Baio mm-hmm. denying oh. a claim made by his former Charles in Charge co-star Nicole Eggert that something inappropriate happened between the two when she was a minor she tweeted Saturday uh, to ask Bayo about what happened in his garage uh, when she was a minor. And he responded in a 16-minute Facebook Live video, wow, saying that he's being falsely accused of inappropriately touching and having intercourse with her when she was a minor. Bayo said he and Eggert had a consensual relationship after she was over the age of 18. Uh, Charles in Charge, by the way, aired from 1984 to 1990. And uh, I don't know exactly how old Nicole Eggert was, but I'm pretty sure she started that show as a kid. Um, so that... Yeah, we're talking 30, yeah. what, 34 years ago, you know, that uh, Hollywood... God, I, I want to make sure I say this the right way. Hollywood, I guess you you kind of somehow expect that because of the reputation Hollywood has had all over the all these years. But when... You have people that are supposedly leaders, supposedly among the decision makers for our country, who are in incredibly powerful positions. That's the word, though. Yeah, I know. And that's the word, right, Jerry? The word power. We talk about this being a sexual thing or this interpretation. It's typically not. It's about power. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with sex at all. It's all about someone wanting to hoard lord their 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 power over someone else no matter what their sex is it doesn't really matter it's the fact that yes i have power over you and going back to what you were saying earlier about uh, people being defiant and would you really step down if if you weren't guilty well i think a lot i think the first uh, thing you would think of is you know what i'm going to fight this i'm going to stand my ground mm-hmm. but then you start thinking about the party that you're representing yeah. and are you hurting your party by staying where you are even Though these accusations may be false, but maybe you need to step down, step away from the limelight for a while just so that your party doesn't get tarnished. And that's certainly in a political realm. I'm maybe more talking about a personal light, Jeff. Yeah, like in politics, that certainly adds a lot more of just the optics of it, no matter right. what. It's like, you know, guilty or innocent, not even for stuff like this, for anything over the years. As soon as you've got the taint of any sort of scandal on you, you know, up until Donald Trump, the common thought was, well, you just you get out of politics if you've anyone even thinks you've done anything wrong, because what's the point? You're unelectable at that point, right? Now, Greg, this sort of ties into something else that you have uh, been following over the weekend. Uh, there's a name, a man named Gary Marshall. No, not he, that Gary Marshall. No, not <laughs> that Gary Marshall. <laughs> He's the leader of something called the Manitoba Party, and he initiated quite the debate on Twitter over the weekend, and it has to do with taxation of feminine hygiene products. And uh, the fact that 
these products are taxed is uh, is bothersome to many, if not, I won't say all women, but to many women. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Gary Marshall has managed to uh, become a little bit of a national celebrity on Twitter based on his take on this. And he's gone as far as to call women uh, that are um, of menstruing, menstrual cycle age, sorry if I'm saying that incorrectly, are a special <laughs> interest group. <laughs> And has boiled it down to the fact that this is, uh, you know, amounts to $12 a year and seems to be missing the fact that it's the point of this is an absolutely necessity of life for most women, if not now, at some point in their life, in the future or in the past, and has really raised the ire of a great number of people, in spite of the fact that uh, when this debate started, he had all of 55 Twitter followers. He has oh. 63 now, but has really brought himself <laughs> into the so uh, limelight. Eight, there are another eight Looney Tunes out there, though. <laughs> well, uh, either either morbidly curious about what he's going to say next or that agree with <laughs> Him. Savannah, yeah, yeah, I know you were following this. Yeah, I was looking at it over the weekend. It's, yeah, I don't know. That's not a fight I'd want to get into if I were him. I just can't see you winning such a battle <laughs> as a man to begin with. I don't how how much can you possibly know about it? Like, it, ooh, I don't know. It's well, not. He did a pretty good job trying to mansplain yes, it all yes. to everyone. <laughs> yes, he don't you, tried Don't hard. you love it when a, an old man has like a really hot take on <laughs> your issues about your body? <laughs> Savannah Pierce in for Shanley Vidal, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun behind the glass. Jerry, thank you very much. You can send us your feedback at 204-780-6868. Oh, play me some mountain music. Like Grandma and Grandpa used to play Then I'll float on down the river Mackling and McGarry To Cajun Hideaway The concert announcement we have been promising is who? Greg Mackling. Alabama, I don't care if you like country music or not, it's impossible not to stomp your feet and want to clap along to that song. That is one of the great songs of all time. Alabama, one of the great live acts of all time in any genre of music. Alabama coming to Bell MTS Place August 1st. Tickets go on sale Friday, February 2nd at 10 a.m., of course, through Ticketmaster. And uh, they're bringing their Southern Drawl Tour to Bell MTS Place. And uh, we have tickets, beat the box office tickets, after 8.30 this morning. Not now. Don't call now. Correct. We just want to let you know that tickets are uh, available on Friday and that Alabama is coming to town and there will be a pre-sale on Thursday. I suspect we may have a secret word for you. Well, actually, the uh, the, the fan club pre-sale starts tomorrow morning and... Uh Oh, the fan club presale. Pardon Correct. me. Correct. So, so if you're a two. big fan, you'll know about this already. Yeah, the fan club presale starts tomorrow, and then we'll have another presale. Looks like Thursday at 10 a.m. And then the general tickets. See if there are any any tickets left after all the presales. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, we have five pairs of tickets to give away throughout the week. So this is exciting stuff, Alabama. So stay tuned for your cue to call. Of course, last night was the Grammy Awards. We'll talk at uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, Jerry Richardson in for Shanalee Vidal on three things. We'll tell you three things that you might not have known that happened at the Grammys last night. And speaking of the Grammys, Alabama has won, get this, 
Brett, 178 Country Music Awards. I said pardon? Grammy Awards, ACM Awards, and counting. They are spectacular, and they're coming to Winnipeg, and we'll give you an opportunity to win some tickets in about an hour and a half from now. Swan River declares state of emergency over water supply shortage. That is the headline at globalnews.ca and cjob.com. Global News reporter Zara Premji is on her way out to Swan River right now, and she joins us live on 680 CJOB. Zara, where are you right now? I think we are just past or kind of getting near Ashburn at this point, so still a ways to go. Uh, We are on the road. We're looking for a little bit of sunlight, not finding it, but... uh, You know, it's an interesting situation that we're heading into. We don't really know what to expect. But what we do know is so far a lot of water has been trucked into Swan River to help those that are pretty much without water. A town of nearly 4,000 people all being told that they can only really use two liters of water a day right now, which if you think about it is not a lot. And all they're able to really use it for is for sanitary reasons. Uh, to cook and any other emergency reasons. I also saw photos on social media that porta potties have actually been brought in to the local co-op gas station. So if you need to go to the washroom, it's not a matter of, oh, you can just go upstairs to your bathroom. It's running over or driving over to the co-op. Situations that I don't think many of us in Winnipeg could ever, ever imagine. Yeah, that's uh, very true, Zara. Uh, I've seen pictures as well from Facebook and other social media of uh, digging and some preliminary construction work or exploratory work. Uh, Are we getting some indication that the community, the town, may have an idea of where this problem is? I mean, I've seen those same photos at this point. I just checked before chatting with you guys, but they haven't updated anything yet. So it's not that they... It doesn't seem they found the source, but from those photos, it does look like they know where they're working. And we're reading um, from the town's website that they have been working overnight with the water waste and management crew to also figure out what's going on. Essentially, all they know is that the town's water supply from the well is not flowing into the water treatment plant. They don't know why. They said they noticed this on Friday, actually on Saturday, rather. And then Sunday had to call the state of emergency. But at this point, they haven't even put on a boil water advisory. They said they're not there yet, but the water is going to go. They said one way or another, it is going, which is why crates full of water have been brought in and are currently at the at the high school right now, which is actually going to remain closed today. All schools closed. The hospital is going to be dwindling down. They're also canceling surgery. Things like that can't happen if you don't have water. Now, I've been through Swan River several times in my lifetime, never spent any time there. I was very shocked when I heard your first report at 6 o'clock this morning that Swan River has a population of 4,000. I imagined it around 2,500 people. So this is a fairly large community. For those that don't know their geography, where is Swan River, Zara? Um, It's about, I'd say about 500 kilometers from Winnipeg going northwest. So it's pretty much almost at the border of Saskatchewan. So very far northwest. It's quite a ways away. I've never been, so I'm obviously following a map with uh, my photographer right now as we're heading over there. But uh, it's a lot larger than I think most people imagine. When I had heard about Swan River when moving to Winnipeg, I same thing. I thought it was about 2,500 people max, but this is actually a community of roughly 4,000 people. Imagine 4,000 people without water. 
I, I don't even think I can imagine that. We're not too sure what we're going into. We've picked up water to go in there because we're not too sure if we'll have anything to, to drink or to use while we're there. All right, Zara Premji, Global News reporter, thank you so much for providing this update on the way out to Swan River. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Zara throughout the day on 680 CJOB. Mackley McGarry with you. And uh, do you know the name Cal Botterill, Brett McGarry, as I spit it out? Yeah, sorry, what was that name again? Cal Botterill. Um, Botterill <laughs> oh, rings a bell. Are you, are you giving, you're giving me a hard time there. <laughs> I was giving you sass mouth, yes. You were, you're being sassy. I will wash your <laughs> mouth out with soap later. Uh, Cal Bo- Botterill, one of the most... Um, most heavily and highly regarded sports psychologist in Canada, maybe in North America, worked at the University of Winnipeg for years and years, worked with uh, teams across North America uh, for uh, decades. His son, Jason, is now the general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, and of course his daughter, Jennifer, one of the most decorated Olympians of all time, grew up right here in Winnipeg, did Jason and Jennifer. And so this idea of sports psychology is one, I think, that's been on the radar maybe in Winnipeg, for as long as it's been on the radar in any other community, we want to bring in uh, someone who who talks about this on a high level and a high level of sport. Our next guest, Brenly Shapiro. Brenly Shapiro is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, sports psychology and performance, mental performance coach, and is the the mental performance coach for the Peterborough Peets in the OHL. Now, Brenly. First of all, hello yes. there. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Did you happen to hear Greg's uh, shot across the bow? I did hear it. I think, though, by now we got to start working at getting over that, hey? <laughs> 1979, <laughs> Mother's Day, 2-1 in overtime. Bob Atwell scored the wow. overtime winning goal against my Brandon Wheat Kings, and I haven't been the same since, Brendan. See that. You should have seen him cursing and swearing off the air. He was looking as he was looking up goals. <laughs> he really does hold a grudge. Um, but so first of all, I think what really jumped out at me here is that uh, the Peets, Peterborough Peets, the first OHL team to bring on a mental performance coach as part of their staff. So is this something that's yeah. new in uh, in sports where teams are hiring people like yourself to be part of the staff? I think it's been there, as you said. You know, it's been around, but I think more and more people are really embracing the concept and really welcoming it and starting to recognize the value that it has in terms of impacting performance. How does it impact your performance and how can you, uh, is it a fact of, of getting tougher? Is it just more being more aware of what makes you tick, Brenly? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I, I feel like I always say the mind leads the body. So obviously you need the skill to do whatever it is you're doing in terms of performance, but it all starts in the mind. And if the mind is not strong or not sending the right messages, then the body's going to follow. So we really want to impact that and create that level of mental toughness, strong, powerful, productive thinking that's going to guide you in the right direction. The website is mentalgamecoaching.ca. Again, mentalgamecoaching.ca. And on that homepage, uh, you'll see the words, it's time to get your head in the game. But what if it's your head that is the problem? Uh, For example, I like to golf, but I spend most of the round trapped in my own head. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. The mind leads the body. So you could have all the talent, skill in the world. But again, if you're stuck in your head, if you're overthinking, if you're sending the wrong messages, I'm never going to see what you have available come out in terms of your performance. 
So how do we overcome some of these barriers that we, clearly we put there ourselves? Uh, I know that I've heard athletes, uh, National Hockey League players in particular, that can point to a specific game or even a specific shift in a particular game when they realized that they belonged and and that the game, you know, we talk about the game slowing down for you and that you being able to see a half or a, a step ahead in a different fashion. How, how do we get to that point, whether it be in sport or other aspects of our, our lives? I, I think for a lot of us, it's just a matter of believing that we belong in a certain scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of performance, there's a few things that need to happen. Number one, when you talk about that word believe, you need to have the belief that you can and will be able to do it and get to where you want to be. If you don't believe that, then I think you're done right from the get-go. So you got to believe that you can do it. And then when we are performing, whether it's in school, whether it's in sport, whether it's in the business world, we need to focus on the process. I'm all about process and letting go of the end results. Because that's where we start to get stuck in our head. We start to worry about failure, not getting to where we want to be. So we want to be, I kind of use this tagline, be here, right here, right now, in the present moment. What's happening right now and what do I need to focus on? So I I talk about using a win statement, which is that what's important now and being completely 100% engaged in the process of what you're doing. One of the things you talk about here is that we need to learn how to fail better. What does that mean? Well, I think failure and fear of failure is one of the biggest barriers to success. So people are so afraid of making a mistake, of not getting to where they want to be, of not doing well enough. And really, I always say that, you know, greatness is lies on the other side of failure, that there's so much growth and opportunity in failure if we're willing to face it and learn from failure and use it to make us better then that's how we get better. That's how we move to the other side of success and greatness. I mean, there are a lot of uh, great quotes about failure and the mm. benefits of failure and statistics with regards to uh, baseball players. A, a Hall of Fame hitter really only uh, puts their bat on a ball once every three times or up to right. up to the plate and the whole idea of this. Uh, what about having a short memory, Brenly? Short memory, that present-oriented focus. I'm all about present and process-oriented. We want to be focused in the present moment, right? When you're playing, when you're competing, when you're in school, when you're in business, at the performance level, it's right now. So what happened five seconds ago does not matter to me anymore. It's over. It's done with. What's going to happen in five seconds also doesn't matter to me. What do I need to do right now? All right. Well, right now, unfortunately, we have to go. But Brenly Shapiro, <laughs> thanks for the chat. We will have you My back. Uh, Brenly Shapiro is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, sports psychology and performance, mental performance coach for the Peterborough Peets in the OHL. And again, the website is mentalgamecoaching.ca. I mean, hey, even Yoda says it in The Last Jedi. The greatest teacher failure is. One, two, three. Three things with Jerry. Behind the glass, Jerry. Shanalee Vidal is away this week, so three things with Jerry today. Hey, Jerry, what you got? I've got three things you might have missed at the Grammys. Everyone's talking about all these big wins, Bruno Mars taking, you know, everything. But, you know, there's a few things that people may have missed at the Grammys last night. Cool. Including number one. Uh, because it wasn't even aired during the Grammys. Mm. 
That's this is sad too that it wasn't. Yeah, Carrie Fisher won for best spoken word album. Okay. For her album, uh, the Princess Diarist, which was an audiobook of a book that she had written using her handwritten diaries from when she was on the set of the original Star Wars movie back in 1976. Wow. Now, what's even cooler, I noticed that she had won, and I knew you'd be interested by that, was who she was up against. (laughs) Yes. Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysics for people in a hurry. I think I got to get my hands on that one. (laughs) Bruce Springsteen, born to run. Might be as close as I ever get to seeing Springsteen in concerts. Also for people in a hurry. And uh, of course, uh, Shelley Pekin. Sorry, I don't know who that is. Confessions of a songwriter. And also I must get my hands on this. Bernie Sanders and Mark Ruffalo, our revolution, a future to believe in. Fascinating fascinating uh, area of uh, of award here at the Grammys. Those all seem like really fascinating albums that I'd like to, well, most of them I think I'd like to hear. Yeah, astrophysics for people in a hurry. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. If anyone can make astrophysics sound exciting, it is him. Jeff Courier interviewed uh, Mr. Uh, deGrasse Tyson uh, several years ago, and it was intoxicating radio. His voice is intoxicating, yes. his knowledge, and the way he makes it understandable for the masses is amazing. And his excitement for astrophysics is just, it's catching. (laughs) (laughs) Silence. (laughs) No, I try not to laugh hard. It's infectious. It is, absolutely. Absolutely. What's the second thing? Carrie Fisher, she she passed away in uh, December of 2016, and so she won that posthumously. Uh, Another posthumous winner was Leonard Cohen. Now, Leonard Cohen... One, this is kind of an odd one, I thought, for mm. best rock performance. Okay, well, have you got an example of what this rock performance sounds like, Jerry? Yes, here it is. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. I mean, I love... It's it's classic Leonard Cohen. I love Leonard Cohen as much as the next Canadian, but come on, seriously, this is a rock performance? Uh, Apparently. Best, Mm. that's not, it's not just a rock performance, it's the best rock performance. Oh, pardon me. Sorry, sorry. Sorry. And of course, uh, Leonard Leonard Cohen winning that posthumously because he died in November of 2016. Yeah, that's, uh, well, oddly enough, one of his co-nominees was Chris Cornell. Yes. Uh, for The Promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so two of the, the five nominees are no longer with us in That's that right. category. And they beat out Foo Fighters, who did win for Best Rock Song for Run, by the way. I needed to point that out. Thank you for pointing that is out. Is that a fourth thing? That, that, that'd that be a fourth thing. The third thing is actually uh, three things in one. Okay. It's other Canadian winners. Great. Okay, so uh, A, uh, Alicia Cara won Best New Artist. Great for her. She's been around forever, though. I mean, she's been around for a few years in Canada anyway. She gets Best New Artist this year? Well, yeah, and it's because in 2015, and I I think, Greg, actually, you had pulled this song here, which is actually called Here. This is from about three years ago? Yeah, early 2015. Uh, so this particular song comes out, but she and she had a so yeah I think two follow-up singles to that, and she wasn't nominated. And people thought, what? Why wasn't she nominated? But there are weird rules at the Grammys where, um, hang on, you you must have released a minimum of five singles 
or one album, but no more than 30 singles or three albums to qualify. So in other words, it's like, well, you can keep applying for this award until uh, you've you had... You break through? Yeah. Wow. So, hey, whatever. Better late than never. Good for them for acknowledging her wonderful talent. Well, we were discussing this, and it's like with all the great Canadian success over the years, it's shocking that she would be the first Canadian to win this award just in the last, you know, 12 years with Justin Bieber, with Drake, with The Weeknd, who did win an award yesterday. Uh, it's shocking that a Canadian hasn't won this uh, newcomer award before. And, in fact, that is the next thing that's, on your list. That's, that's B in number three. The Weeknd won uh, for... Best Urban Contemporary Album for his album Starboy. Are we doing subsections of well, we one, had, two, we and had three to. now? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's three subsection B. The weekend wins Best Urban <laughs> Contemporary <laughs> Album for his album Starboy, and then then quickly getting on to C. My man Tony Bennett wins Best Traditional Vocal Album for Tony Bennett Celebrates Ninety. Love it. Now I know you're thinking. Wait a minute, Tony Bennett. Not exactly Canadian. Nope. No, he's not. But, but there were 18 tracks on this album. 13 were duets, and three of those duets were with Canadians. The Good Life with Michael Bublé. I've got The World on a String with Diana Krall. And A Kiss to Build a Dream On with Katie Lang. Cool. So yes. th- that was 19 things with Jerry Richardson. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, behind the glass, Jerry. You are welcome. The song that I sing, I can make the rain go. Anytime I move my finger Lucky me, can't you see I'm in love It's Mackling and McGarry, 680 CJOB A few months back Gosh, this actually goes back almost a year now It was back in April, I think We interviewed someone who had put a book together called The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superwomen It is a sensational book It's uh, quite the encyclopedia all sorts of interesting stuff looking back at all the various uh, women in comic books over the decades. So you can pick that up in stores right now if you want to. But we want to introduce, reintroduce the author of that, the person who curated that book. Her name is Hope Nicholson. She joins us in studio right now to talk about a couple of other things that she has put together. Uh, Hope, welcome back. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. So this, you, we, I've got two books in my hands here. <laughs> I've got one called Gothic Tales of Haunted Love and The Secret Loves of Geeks. Where do you want to start? Uh, Gothic Tales comes first, so let's talk about that. What is Gothic Tales? Oh, this looks like a a graphic novel. Yeah. Is that how you would describe it? I would say it's a graphic novel anthology. So, uh, you know, not to get pedantic or anything, but a graphic novel usually consists of one story uh, being told in a self-contained volume. And an anthology is uh, several different stories that are all individually self-contained. And who uh, did these stories? Or how, how, much, how many of these are you responsible for writing? <laughs> Just one, actually. It's my first comic book work that I've actually written myself because I'm primarily a publisher and editor. So that was definitely a big change. What was it like doing a, a piece, writing a piece of fiction? It was difficult. I wanted to do it in order to better guide the writers that I edit so I could understand how difficult it is to write a story within specific constraints. And I had set myself to write a story that would be three pages long and it ended up being six pages. So I definitely understand a bit better now how hard it is to work in really tight constraints to tell a story. And it was a great process. I was paired with an amazing illustrator named Scott Chandler and we did a story about... The Yukon Gold Rush and the uh, awful depression and isolation that comes with living in the winter. 
Oh, very uplifting. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> no, but what is uplifting, and uh, I could see the sparkle in your eye and uh, just the fact, the mere fact that you would go to the efforts that you did and the lengths that you went to understand what the other side, the other people that you work with, authors, in your role as an editor, to put yourself in their shoes. I think that's incredibly empathetic of you. Tell us a little bit about those constraints that others, you know, I, I just got an email the other day from a young woman who wants to write a book. I haven't got around to answering her email yet, but what would your, what would your, uh, advice be to someone who's thinking about that and some of the constraints that you might want to keep in mind if you're putting pen to paper? Well, the only book I've written so far is The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superwomen. And again, it was well outside of my comfort zone because I am primarily not a writer. So for me, it was all new and was very uh, anxiety inducing and stressful. And I had no idea where to start or the process of how to edit it, what I should send in to my editor. I made the mistake of sending him in and a too early draft because I thought, oh, hey, I just have to show you how much work I did. And he came back and was all redlined. And I'm like, oh, you weren't actually supposed to read it yet. <laughs> so I definitely learned as I went. I think the best advice I could have is to really set up a regular schedule. So eventually, after a few months of trying to figure it out, I set myself up to write about five hours a day and do research. And it ended up being a um, really smooth process from then on out. So the Gothic Tales of Haunted Love, you... Wrote one story, but there are yeah. many stories in here. As you pointed out, it's an anthology, it's a collection. So where did uh, the, the people who contributed these stories, or where are they from? We actually did an open call on Kickstarter uh, for a Kickstarter, which was funded, um, I think, about maybe five months ago or so, in about October or November, I think. No, sorry, September or October. And a lot of the participants actually came from all around the world. So we have uh, participants telling stories who are based in America, who are based across Canada. In fact, it's primarily a Canadian anthology. But we also have creators based in Australia and Brazil as well. And oh, the stories neat. themselves take place in different time periods and different countries. So we have stories set in Vietnam. We have stories set in Taiwan. We have stories set in the far north and also pre-contact North America. So this means this book is being released globally. It is, yeah. That's so I'm, exciting, right? I'm really excited. I just uh, got distribution access for my publishing company a few months ago. So this will be the first book of mine that's actually going to be published around the world through my publishing company. Well, congratulations on Thank that. You. Uh, you know, we love highlighting Winnipeg success stories. And the, the fact that you've come back to visit us is is extremely, uh, we appreciate it very much. We're extremely proud to, to have you on the program again. And this the whole idea, you know, we were fearful or at least the publishing world was fearful that digital media would overtake and maybe be the eventual demise of the book. I've, I get the sense that it may be the exact opposite. I don't know if people have ever read more books than they're reading now. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the expansion into the digital world has helped to make a lot more comics specifically, because that's my focus, accessible to everyone. And I'm a big fan of digital platforms like Comixology that offer uh, comics at a really low price to get people into. But they also spend a lot of time promoting indie authors and small press creators. And uh, I'm kind of like a fangirl for them. So. Uh, we only have about two minutes left here, so will the, you have a launch for Gothic Tales of Haunted Love, and that's happening when? That's happening on uh, January 31st at McNally Robinson, and I'm talking with uh, David Robertson and Scott Henderson, who also have stories in the book. What time is that? Probably 7 p.m.? 
or seven. <laughs> I should have looked that up before. Wednesday evening. Okay, now we have uh, a couple of minutes to talk about the secret loves of geeks. What's that? Yeah, it's another anthology, but this time it's all true stories about love, sex, and dating. It's a follow-up to the first book, which was The Secret Loves of Geek Girls. But the second edition is a lot more gender-inclusive, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a good book. So, yeah, I'm just looking at this. Uh, I see what appears to be a, a large a hand with claws reaching out to the hand of a... Of a child? Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? No, definitely not a child. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> it, it's the thing is, everyone has different styles. So that person is Shauna Grant, and she draws in a lot softer, rounder style. But it's a story about how her and her boyfriend bonded together over making an RPG together. Okay. Yeah. And this that, this was that was my snap reaction. Like I opened the book to that page, <laughs> of course. and that's what I saw. No. So for, my forgive or please accept my apology to the creator of this. But yeah, I love the artwork in this, and I think. Uh, one of the you talked about indie comics. One of the things I like about indie work is that you get that sort of outside of the typical kind of stuff. Like when you when you open a Marvel comic or you open a DC comic, the artwork's great, but it always tends to be kind of the same. Yeah, and we have uh, some artists in the book who've worked for bigger publishers, like Michael Walsh, who does a lot of work for um, Marvel, actually illustrates a story by Margaret Atwood in the book, and it's a story of her like young dating life and her obsession with Edgar Allan Poe and horror. So that was really fun. But then we also have a lot of new up-and-comers, indie people, people in webcomics, and a lot of the work I do is about bringing together established professionals in the comic book world with people who need that access to bolster their careers up. What is your website? Do you have a website you'd like yes. to plug? Yes, uh, bedsidepress.com. You can find all my books there. And yeah, feel free to shoot me an email anytime. Hope Nicholson is her name. And again, the launch Wednesday evening at McNally Robinson for Gothic Tales of Haunted Love. And The Secret Loves of Geeks comes out. Uh, when's that going to launch? Valentine's Day, February 14th. And oh, then we're doing a launch a week later at Galaxy Comics. Hope, thank you so much for the visit. Uh, we are happy to have you back today. Thanks for having me. Dun, dun, dun. Guess what, Brett? There's another festival coming to Winnipeg. Shanley Fest, Royal MTC's Shanley Fest. And to talk about this, to learn more, we have invited Master Playwright Festival Executive Producer Chuck McEwen to join us live on 680 CJOB to tell us all about Shanley Fest. Mr. McEwen, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So, what is the 18th annual Shanley Fest? Well, every year, uh, MTC and local theater companies put on a play featuring a specific master playwright. This is our 18th festival, and this year we're featuring Irish-American playwright John Patrick Shanley. Who was John Patrick Shanley? Here's an interesting quote from him. Theater is the safe place to do unsafe things that need to be done. What made him so revolutionary and, and iconic? Chuck. Well, you know, I, he's a contemporary of David Mamet, maybe a few years younger, and I think what um, what I, I really like about Shanley is he writes about uh, community, family, the misfit, and those questions we all ask ourselves. Where do we come from? How do we find love? Wh- what's our life going to be like? And I think we can all relate to those basic questions, and it comes from his roots. He comes from a real working-class neighborhood in the Bronx. So I'm just looking at uh, how many companies are involved here. You've got 13 Local theater companies? That's right. We've got lots of uh, individual professional companies and community theater companies, and they've picked a play that uh, that speaks to them. Now, the, the name of the festival, so it, the actual name, uh, the as far as an annual basis is concerned, it's the Master Playwright Festival, but this year right. it's uh, subtitled Shanley Fest. Um, right. What Can you remember off the top of your head what it might have been called last year? 
Uh, well, last year it was uh, Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, it was Christie Fest. Oh, cool. So yeah, I didn't so realize she was a playwright as well. Oh, you bet. You bet. In fact, uh, she she started off as a playwright. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we've taken on 18 playwrights over the years, and uh, Shanley's probably one of the more contemporary players, like a David Mamet. And I think uh, Winnipeg theater fans and people that are interested in checking out the play for the first time will be able to relate to his characters because they are, you know, everyday people. Well, and, you know, if you need a point of reference, uh, John Patrick Shanley, in fact, won an Oscar for his writing of Moonstruck, which... Uh, I think that's Nicolas Cage and Cher, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head. That's exactly right. An outstanding movie. So if people want a reference before they buy tickets or commit to buying tickets for this, that might be a good point of reference for them. Well, he's one of the few playwrights that's won uh, a Pulitzer Prize, a Tony Award, and an Oscar. My word. Uh, fun, funnily enough. So, you know, and, and people might know some of his films. He wrote, you know, if you if you want. And by the way, that, sh- that film is going to be uh, screened for free in the festival, as well as uh, one of his uh, more odd comedies, Joe Versus the Volcano, with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Yeah, I see that Moonstruck will be at the uh, the Down of Air Museum, and then uh, Joe versus a volcano at the Millennium Library. And this, I think, actually speaks to the the variety that is in his work because you've got Moonstruck, then you have Joe versus the volcano, and then a third movie which is called Doubt. Um, that is uh, also going to be at the Millennium Library. Uh, that one is that the one that starred um, was Kate Winslet in that. No. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. What's doubt? Can you what refresh my memory? What's doubt about? Doubt is his Pulitzer Prize Tony Award winning play. It's a uh, it's a play about uh, questions and, and and what people believe. It's the one where uh, an older sister at a church thinks a young priest has done something wrong, and a younger sister doesn't not quite know who to believe. And it's that idea of you know what do you see, what do you don't see. Uh, young versus old, uh, it, it sort of has, uh, you know, it was linked to a family story. A lot of his stories are based on his own family, so it's a real challenging drama. This is the quote uh, attached to John Patrick Shanley uh, on your website with regard to doubt. Doubt requires more courage than conviction does because conviction is a resting place and doubt is infinite. We've got to learn to live with a full measure of uncertainty. There is no last word. Those are uh, those are profound words for some of the issues we're dealing with in terms of uh, Hollywood and Parliament Hill and, and this whole uh, question of uh, sexual propriety. Very, very relevant, very relevant. And again, like a link to David Mamet, David Mamet wrote a play called Oleana, which was a similar thing based on a professor and a teacher. So these are, you know, it, it, the, the way he writes his plays is he doesn't want to sign or, or make an easy, get, give an easy answer. He wants the audience to decide for themselves what to believe, what's true, what's not true. And I think we all deal with that on a daily basis, as you just pointed out. So I'm at uh, your website right now, royalmtc.ca, and I've found my way to Shanley Fest. And I see that uh, on top of the, the main Shanley Fest, there are some uh, free events that are happening as well. In fact, one of them is tomorrow night. That's right. We have, uh, like you said earlier, the three films, and then tomorrow night we have the first of two of our free lectures. It's an introductory lecture just to go over the broad scope of, of who Stan, uh, Shanley is, uh, the, where he came from, the development of his plays over time, and give uh, theatergoers a chance to get a few things to keep uh, be aware of as they go out and see a variety of his plays over the next three weeks. 
Master Playwright Festival Executive Director Chuck McEwen is our guest. And Chuck, uh, when we have you on the air, would be remiss without asking about the Fringe Festival, being the Executive Director of Fringe. How are plans coming for the 2018 Festival? And how are we going to make sure we pass Edmonton and and make sure that uh, we have more people than uh, Edmonton this year? Oh my gosh, we are busy working on the Fringe for next year. It's our 31st Fringe coming up this summer. We're looking forward to it. Uh, we've got a great lineup of artists on, on board so far. We're hoping for great weather. That's the big part of selling tickets. But for me, it's just everybody that's been to the Fringe before just needs to spread the love and say how, how great an event it is. And it's for everybody. Anybody can come out and be welcome at the Fringe. You can find something you'll love. And for those regulars, if everybody just sees one more show, We'll, we'll break Edmonton's record. <laughs> I love it. One more show. In the meantime, Shanley Fest starts tomorrow, goes through February 18th. Lots of things to see. RoyalMTC.ca if you want more details online. Thanks for this, Chuck. Thank you for having me. Hope to see you out. All right. Chuck McEwen is the Master Playwright Festival executive producer, Royal MTC's Shanley Fest. It is the 18th annual Master Playwright Festival this year, featuring the work of Pulitzer Prize, Tony, and Academy Award-winning playwright John Patrick Shanley. <laughs> That's all the time we have. I'm Brady's Greg. Behind the glass, Jerry, thank you, and thanks to Savannah Pierce filling in for Shanley Vidal, producing the show today. Savannah.